From the Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company. Here's Plum. As he steps back, shot good. She made it look so easy. Wilson, going to back down Nick, a six-point Muscles his way up and in, plus the foul. Janae, the trailer, the layup won't go. Rebound off to Wilson, her 11th. No foul for L.A., and that'll be that. It's time for Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, let's get it on a Tuesday edition Adams Family, Cofield and Company, Adam Candy in for Steve, Adam Hill alongside Ari in the Finley Toyota Studios. Packed show today, Connor McGahee from the Colorado Avalanche broadcast will talk about the Stanley Cup winning Colorado Avs in just about a half hour. Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus joins us in the 5 o'clock hour. He's going to explain why all of your money Every last dollar should be on the Detroit Lions this year. And we'll talk to Sam Paniotovic, as always, on Tuesdays. He's going to tell us if he can eat 74 and a half hot dogs, much like Joey Chestnut. Let's get it. It's the three on Cofield and Company. Adam, I have two important questions for you as we start the show. We'll handle them one at a time. Hopefully I have two answers. Okay. Well, I, I think these are questions you're going to be prepared for, I hope. Uh, the first question is, sir, have you ever thrown ketchup? And has that ketchup ever dripped down a wall? Um, I Listen, I, I enjoy ketchup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I've thrown it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe like... You know you have the the large trash cans in high school? Sure. Like the the giant yeah. ones. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you know like as I walk out of the cafeteria I've tried to like toss it in, like shoot it, like like anybody does. Like take a jumper. Yeah, a little, little ketchup jumper. Sure. A little, little ketchup for 3. But if you're asking if I've been enraged uh-huh. watching, you know, television coverage of something mm-hmm. that I'm a part of and then Somebody says something that I don't like. I've no, I've never thrown ketchup in anger at a wall. I was just kind of curious. I was watching okay. the news today, and I okay. saw some news about uh, about ketchup being thrown at a wall. I, I just didn't know if this was the sort of thing that normal people do. Because Adam, there's so much discussion right now about what normal people do that I don't really know what's normal and what's not normal. Because I I consider myself a fairly normal person. I don't uh, so. That's my question for you. Are you a normal person? That's no. question number two. No, no, not on, not a normal, not person. on any level. Okay, no. Are you, are you different? I'm, I'm different. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think everybody's different in their own in their own way. I'm, I find myself extraordinarily odd. Okay. Um, I think I, I can blend in with society on some level. Like I can have conversation. No, actually, that's not true because I can't have small talk, and I'm very uncomfortable with all that. Um, no, I, I don't, I'm not normal in any way. Okay. So if you're the one who's different, then I assume you're the one much like Kyrie. You guys are brothers in arms. You're going to lead us into tomorrow. You guys are going to be doing our crypto deals for us <laughs> when the time comes. Because Kyrie Irving, when he opted into his contract yesterday, the $36 million option he had for the upcoming season after failing miserably to try to find a sign-and-trade for himself to make, you know, $6 million on the Lakers. Kyrie being 
exactly who he is, said this to The Athletic, Normal people keep the world going, but those who dare to be different lead us into tomorrow. I've made my decision to opt in. See you in the fall. A11 even. Normal people keep the world going, but those who dare to be different lead us into tomorrow. When do we find out that this was all a big play for Kyrie to sign a crypto deal? Well, probably not the best time for that. That would make it appropriate for Kyrie then, right? Well, Kyrie doesn't have to great different. timing either. He dares to be different. Yeah. Listen, if, there, if there's anyone out there who you know, when nobody else is willing to take a shot, Kyrie will take that shot. I'm sorry, no, he will not. Actually, no, it's, it's exactly the opposite. When everyone else out there will take that shot, Kyrie will not take that shot, right? I don't, like, I don't, first of all, I. it's incredibly, well, I'm, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking that Kyrie might be a bit arrogant. Um, like, I, there's definitely parts of me that are like, why am I so weird and different? Like, this is not leadership. Nobody's following my weird oddities. Like, uh, I'm not going to change the world. I'm just going to be annoying. Like that—that's—that's that's how you should think of when you're completely different. I mean, yes, I know that you have to be different and you know blaze your own trail, but I'm not—I'm not even thinking about those lines. I'm, I know I just don't—I don't—I don't function well. Like I'm, I'm not thinking I'm changing the world by being weird. We're, we're going to get more into the Kyrie story <laughs> as the show goes on, but I'm—I'm I'm telling you right now. I don't know how I didn't reach this breaking point sooner, but but this this was it. Yesterday was it for me with with Kyrie. Like as much as the vaccine situation was impossible to understand, the one where he tries to go out there and piss on my leg and tell me that it's raining is the one that I can't take where he's the one who wanted a sign and trade deal. And yet He's the one who now opts into $30 million and tells us that he's being different. <laughs> no, bro. You just decided to go to work, which is the, the real different thing for you. You don't usually go to work. You've played 103 games in the last three years. You don't ever go to work. But I guess that's going to be the different thing for you is that you actually show up to work. Yeah, normal people keep the world going, but those who dare to be different lead us into tomorrow by throwing ketchup at the wall. Uh, listen, that's how it all comes together, right? That, that See... That's why we need an oddity like you, Adam Hill, because you know how to bring all these things together. Uh, you know who else brings people together? Adam Russell Westbrook. <laughs> sure. Russell Westbrook brings everyone together because we all look at what Russell Westbrook and think, I can hit the side of the backboard for $47 million. I could do that. Russell Westbrook uh, opted in for $11 million more than Kyrie. He did not, however, make any sort of public proclamation about how it makes him different. He just very smartly took his $47 million very quietly for next year. Well, yes and no. I mean, first of all, he, isn't he also daring to be different by opting into a massive contract? That I guess if that's the standard, right, that, then he obviously is opting in and uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis are the normal people who are going to show up to work every day. Yeah, I mean, instead of just, but everybody has, and I'm I'm fine with this because I live my life on social media and everything is everything's out there and public and it's fine with me and I don't mind that other people do that either. But like when you're when you just try to be like subtle about it, and you know Kyrie puts out this profound statement like he's making some groundbreaking decision by opting into a contract for thirty six million dollars. Um, you know Kyrie, excuse me, Russ just sits in his car and sings Beyonce like it's supposed to be some you know, subtle shot at somebody. Like I, I, I don't I don't I don't get the subtleties of this. Like just tweet out 
Yeah, I'm taking the 47 million. Screw everyone. I I opted against the Beyonce audio. I know you said no, I that. Get it. I know you sent that along, and to, to Russ, I must say, keep the Queen's name out of your mouth. Uh, Whoa. Because I don't, need, I don't need any more of that. But I, I just think it's it's like, why? Just for, you know, obviously, the fact that you just sit in your car and you sing Beyonce, and that's your only post. Like, you don't mention it, you don't have a tag, you don't have a caption, nothing. I'm just going to sing Beyonce, and that's my signal that I'm opting into the contract. It's just weird. Well, let me ask and you another terrible. why question, Adam. Why in the hell is Warren Sapp the one to tell us how Colin Kaepernick's workout went with the Las Vegas Raiders? Are you getting scooped on your own beat, Adam Hill, by Warren Sapp? He said he heard the workout was a disaster. Is that the truth? I, I, I don't know who he still talks to in the building, right? Like, what connection does he have to the current Raiders? I don't know. Uh, do, do any of the current Raiders share a bankruptcy attorney or <laughs> yeah. perhaps have used the same lawyer when they got busted for solicitation like Warren Sapp? Possibly. Okay. Maybe. maybe. I mean, maybe if, I mean, there are, yeah, I'm not going to make the connection to solicitation in Vegas like that. Too many other people do that. Oh, good job. Uh, good job. Good job. But what does Warren Sapp here know that, that we don't, Adam? Because it seems like this is a desperate play for attention about a Kaepernick workout that we've heard very little about. Well, I think it's a it's a way, and I listen. I hate to to cast this on people because you know, anytime anybody says something, you know, out there, like any anytime somebody tries to make a claim and like, hey, I've heard this, and nobody else has talked about this, um, you can easily just say, hey, you're crying for attention. And I don't I don't like the automatic. It's a cry for attention, but we also do know that you know Warren Sapp is trying to stay relevant on some level. He's been cast because of his own doings. Uh, so he's been on the outside looking in, and I think this is a way of, hey, I know, I know, I can say this and really, you know, create some waves because you know nobody has talked about this. Everybody else has said, hey, it went fine, but I can go out there and say one of the worst ever. First of all, what does that mean? One of the worst ever? What do you just throw the ball straight into the ground? Many like, people are saying this. Many people are saying because also, we've talked about this before, and I guess it wasn't a workout necessarily, like. There were some practices early on. I won't even call it who the guy was. We've talked about it on the air, but I won't say it. There were some practices early on for a quarterback that we watched uh, during his time with the Raiders that he looked like he w- couldn't play middle school quarterback. He looked like he could not play in middle school. Now, there was, issue, there was things going on. He was injured. And he was trying to work his way back from it. It looked horrific. And we could have easily said, that's that's the worst practice ever. Well, yeah, there's also there's also context to it. There's reasons. I will guarantee. I didn't even I didn't see the cap workout. Nobody did. I will guarantee you, Cap's workout was better than this person's practices were. The agent for Colin Kaepernick, Jeff Nally, responded to Warren Sapp. I guess Warren didn't talk to the GM or the head coach. I spoke to the GM several times. He said they all thought Cap was in great shape, threw the ball really well, encouraged any team to call him about the workout, and he would tell him the same. I'm surprised Warren would say that because it's not true and you would think he would want Cap on a team. Now, I think the last part is probably putting words in Warren Sapp's mouth about how he feels about Colin Kaepernick, but the rest of it seems to suggest that Colin Kaepernick feels he had just a fine workout with the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah, and that was what everybody said around it. Now, again, I don't think – let's just say it was the worst workout ever. I don't think Ziggler and McDaniels would have come out and said – that's one of the worst workouts we've ever seen. I don't think they would have said that publicly. And 
it, is it, it's possible it was it was a disaster. It's it's completely possible. But w- first of all, we all have seen footage of Cap working out, right? Not with the Raiders, but in general, he looks fine. Like I'm not saying he looks like an NFL quarterback. I'm not saying he looks like he could start tomorrow. None of that. I'm saying he looks fine. Well, it sounds like fighting words to me, Adam. It sounds <laughs> like fighting words from Warren Sapp to Colin Kaepernick. If we're going to talk fights, you know where you go for all the best fights these days? And. Anaheim, California? Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. I actually like it that teams stick up for each other and stick up for their own guys and are not going to allow you to throw at their guys. But there's a way to do it, and you don't do it up near the head. So here are two teams that need to win all the time just to make the playoffs this year, and a bunch of them are now going to be hamstrung because of suspensions which are upcoming. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. Studio. That's the Hall of Famer Tim Kirkjian on ESPN Radio talking about the Angels and Mariners base brawl from the weekend. A uh, quick piece of news before we get to baseball. Serena Williams falls in three sets in her first round return to Wimbledon. So that is over nearly as quickly as it started. Harmony Tan with a upset victory over Serena Williams. Adam, Tim Kirkjian there talking about the major fight this weekend between the Angels and the Mariners. Uh, let me start here before we get into the, the meat of what happened, which has been a massive amount of suspensions, including Phil Nevin, the manager of the Angels, getting the most at 10 games. Have you watched the 15-plus-minute John Boy breakdown of the fight? I watch I watch a lot of the stuff they do. So, yeah, I, I checked out. I didn't get all the way through it, but I watched most of it. Okay, fair enough. You at least have the gist of what went on here because I thought they did a fantastic job of going into what happened and finding through some of the lip-reading of the conversations the fact that anybody who tells you that, oh, the ball slipped, <laughs> oh, we weren't trying to hit him, they're lying through their teeth. Phil Nevin admits it. Andrew Watts, the pitcher, admits it. Everybody involved in this situation understands exactly what happened. And the video shows that the brawl goes back to the night before when Mike Trout had a ball buzzed by him, and Phil Nevin was out there yelling at the Mariners after the game. So now we see the suspensions come down. Phil Nevin gets 10 games. 12 other, uh, twelve total participants get suspended in this thing. Look, Adam, I'm kind of over baseball trying to settle and police its game with the use of pegging people in the head, the ribs, the butt. I don't care where it is. I, I'm, I'm just kind of over the barbarism of all of it. I, I don't know that this is any way for people to be attracted to the game in any long-form way, but I know there are a lot of people who love the old-school vigilante justice of this and the fact that Phil Nevin might be the, to use a baseball term, red ass of the year for you know what he pulled here. Where do you fall on the spectrum with baseball? Well, he kind of was for, I mean, as a player, he kind of was the same, that was the same his same reputation. I don't think there's any question. And there's there's no doubt, and not not only through um, the work that that you mentioned from John Boy and their breakdown, but I mean, you could see it developing throughout the series. I think it even started back uh, to Friday night. There was some some stuff going on between them, and and they've they they even talked about that afterward. They said, "Look, we've played whatever it was eleven times in you know twenty days or whatever that whatever they played. They were very familiar with each other. I think that divisional structure." Uh, sometimes leads to some of this when you play a bunch of games against each other in a short period of time. 
but clearly they, you know, the, their superstars were hit and thrown at early in the series, and they were going to come back, and that's how people, or that's that's how baseball works, whether we like it or not. I mean, that is what goes on. I, I did think, and I know uh, we talk about you know officials all the time and whether they overstep their bounds and that sort of thing. Like it was clear what was going on early in this game. And the Mariners were looking at the umpires like, dude, what are you doing? You can't allow this guy to stay in the game. They put in a they put in an opener just to throw at our guy. He throws at our guy, and then you let him stay in? Like, what are we doing here? It, it, they gave them a warning. It sure. was a warning. All you had to do was look at that tape from the night before. Phil Nevin is out there staring at the Mariners celebrating, yelling at Scott Service, the Mariners mag- manager, calling him an MFer. <laughs> telling him that we'll settle it later. And then all of a sudden, here comes this opener. They throw at Julio Rodriguez. Then they throw at Jesse Winker. But here's the best part. Dig into that video, and what you'll find is Phil Nevin basically admitting it to the umpire, Adrian Johnson. But even better, later in the fight, my favorite part of this whole thing. So this whole fight is between Jesse Winker, the hitter for the Mariners, Andrew Watts, the pitcher for the Angels. The fight goes down. Punches are being thrown, guys are getting hit, and now these two end up together on the back of the fight. And you would think this is the moment where it's really going to happen, right? The pitcher and the batter. They stand there like they met outside of Starbucks, and they're talking to each other. And the pitcher, Watts, extends his hands out like, hey, dude, I'm sorry, to Jesse Winker, and says to him on the video, I had to hit you. And Winker looks back and says, you had to hit me? He says, I had to hit you. He says, why did you have to hit me? That's how stupid all of this is. The two guys at the center of it are standing there talking to each other, one saying, I didn't want to do it, but I had to, and the other guy who got hit saying, wait, why, why did you have to? And yet we're going to have massive amounts of suspensions, and here's the best part, Adam. Here's the best and worst part of the whole thing all at once. Did you see Angels pitcher Archie Bradley falling over the rail? To get into the fight. Sure. Archie Bradley is now on the injured list with a broken right elbow. Perfect. Well, that's and, how stupid all that's what, this I mean, is. you mentioned your favorite part. My favorite part is that Anthony Rendon is out for the year with a wrist injury, and he's throwing, like, little half slap, like, I'm going I'm to try to jab your face with my palm moves. Like, what, like stay out of this. What are you oh, doing? That reminds me. It, remember the, the UNLV Lady Rebels fight with Utah State a few sure. years back, right? Nikki Wheatley, who had a, had uh, one busted leg, literally hopping, hopping on one leg all the way across the court to get into the fight. That was one of the great moments in sports fight history. It was great. It was fantastic. But, I mean, I'll, like, I, 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 think, I do think it's stupid, obviously. And I'll also say this. I, you mentioned, you know, Winker and, and Watts facing off, and, and, like, those were the two guys in the middle of it. Uh, even though that display happened and, and Winker was like, you had to, really? Winker knows it was the dugout. If it, Like, when you watch, he gets hit, he stands there for a second, he's like, really? And then something is said from the dugout, and that's what really got him. It wasn't that he got hit. I mean, it was, but something was said from the Angels' dugout, and he's like, all right, enough of this. And that's where it really where it really triggered him. So uh, there's just a lot to it. I, I, like, I, do, I think it's silly and stupid on some level, but I also get like, hey, this is – Policing the game, I guess. Like, there's going to be emotions, and guys are going to be angry. So those things are going to happen. I, if they happen every week, I, I think it was ridiculous. But you give me once every two years a, a really, really good fight. I like that. Um, if something leads to a fight, then something leads to a fight. But the idea of policing baseball <laughs> by throwing a 99-mile-an-hour fastball near a dude's head is archaic. It is insane. It needs to be eliminated from the game. 
We've heard so much the last two years with the sticky stuff crackdown that pitchers don't know where the ball's going sometimes, right? We've heard it again this year when we don't know what ball Major League Baseball is actually putting into play. Well, if they can't control a ball that might be getting thrown at the ribs, like Mike Trout said, go ahead and hit me in the ribs, don't hit me in the head, there ain't that much difference between hitting a guy in the ribs and hitting him in the head. And if we're that close to not being able to control it, then it just needs to be cut out of the game entirely. Look, we thought it was going to be a tradition in baseball forever that managers would come out and argue a call and kick dirt and throw bases. Well, you know what happened? Replay happened. And now we don't have any of it anymore. And the game moves on. Well, and and you're right. But I, I mean, I think the argument that they would make is if you take that out of the game completely, now if somebody does it, what do you do? Like, I, I mean, that that is the question. Like, the threat of you throwing at another team's best player is what supposedly keeps other teams from throwing at your best player. It's like an argument about nuclear arms. It is. Like, we can't, well, I can't not have them if you have them. No, that's 100% what it is. I mean, obviously, on a much less serious level, but, yeah, that's what it is. Like, we can't give up ours because you have yours. But if you give up yours, we still need to keep ours in case you once you start to get yours. So, like, it's never, there's never going to be a de-escalation of throwing at, throwing at guys. Like, it's going to continue to happen. You can try to suspend guys. You can try to make them, you know, pay. I guess massive fines might drop it a little bit, but again, it's not the players doing it. I I remember this in like when I was coming up as a pitcher, and I was when I was hopeful that I was going to be a real pitcher at some point. We had a coach that was a current minor league player, and he was coaching us in winter ball. You know, as as you know, just kind of what he was doing in the off season because he knew one of the kids on our team, whatever. And it was pretty high level baseball for that age, you know, fifteen, sixteen, and our guy gets hit. Another guy on our team gets hit, and I'm pitching, and he's like, "You got to throw at them." And I was like, "Wait, why? What do you? T- why? Why would I do that? Like, you have to. That's how, that's how it's done. You keep that. You keep that going." And then I go throw at a guy, and he's like, "What the hell was that?" And and you know, I said, "Hey, I, I'm supposed to do it. I don't know. That's what I was told to do." So I mean, it's it's taught. It's what guys bring to the next generation. They tell me you have to do that to protect your teammates. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if you just said, "Hey, the first time anybody gets hit, we're just." We're just going to throw you out of games? I don't know. Does that fix throwing inside? And how much does that ruin the pitcher's ability to throw inside? I don't know. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I'm just I'm, – I'm out on – I'm out on 15-year-olds in winter ball having to do it. I'm out on Major League Baseball having to do it. We're talking about – I should, I should also point out you have a baseball life. in your hand at the time. I, I have a baseball in my <laughs> hand to draw home the point of how hard this damn thing is if you get hit in the head. So if I get hit in the head with this baseball – I'm probably going to tell somebody about it unless I'm a hockey player. Then I don't tell anybody. The crew over at Finley Toyota speak Spanish, Thai, and even Persian. In fact, they speak 14 different languages. Come in and talk the universal language of big savings today. Tampa was right there and could have won. I think there was some fatigue, but I was really impressed with the way they gathered things out to get back to a final. Now, if you go by sizzle, there's no doubt the machine that is the Colorado Avalanche blitzed their way through. They only lost four games the entire postseason, which uh, is impressive and second only to the highly mighty Edmonton Oilers way back in the 80s. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. Studio. And Adam's family, Cofield and Company, Adam Candy, Adam Hill, Ari alongside. You hear the voice of 
Mr. Sizzle himself, Darren Millard, on the way back talking about the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Colorado Avalanche. About 10 minutes to talk to Connor McGahee, Avs broadcaster, about being up close and personal with the first Colorado Avalanche Stanley Cup victory in 21 years. I was in the building the last time they won in 2001 as a forlorn New Jersey Devils fan. Uh, it was a pretty healthy Devils fan team at the time. Uh, Adam, you've spent plenty of time covering hockey. Um, upper body injury, lower body injury, end of the theoretical injury report, right? That's it. That's, it. That's all there is. And John Cooper, the head coach of the Lightning, talking to Kevin Weeks in the postgame, was giving him giving him the old John Cooper one-two, right? The the nice, slick John Cooper discussion of, you don't know what these guys have gone through. I could tell you what's going on in that room. And Kevin Weeks tries to say to him, well, I know you can't tell us everything that's going on in that room. Give us a little flavor of what's going on. Well, Braden Point shouldn't even have been out there. Braden Point shouldn't even have been on the ice. And we find out now, because now it's acceptable post-Stanley Cup Finals, post-playoffs, about what all those injuries were to the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, And it is an absolute litany, Adam, of injuries to that Lightning squad that they were dealing with over the course of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Let me run through just a few of them here. Braden Point with a significant quad tear. Uh, Nikita Kucherov had an MCL injury. Anthony Sorelli sprained a C-joint that might require surgery. Uh, Golden Knights' old friend Pierre-Edouard Belmar had a meniscus injury. Ryan McDonough had a, quote, <laughs> mangled finger. Sounds like fun. Uh, Brandon Hagel had a official? fractured foot in the Florida series. And both Nick Paul and Corey Perry, AC joint injuries uh, and an MCL sprain for Nick Paul. Um, why do we find out about these things now, Adam? Are we supposed to take these as excuses? Are we supposed to be like, oh, well, of course they couldn't keep up. They were hurt, right? Because we spent the entire season with hockey talking about their hockey players. They play through. It's an upper body injury. It's a lower body injury. You don't need to know any more than that. So why the hell do we find out about it, all of it now? It feels useless. Uh, well, I mean, now it, the whole the whole point, the whole excuse that they use is always, "Hey, we don't want to know. We don't want you to know what our injuries are because we don't want them targeted if the guys are actually on the ice." So it, it does make sense if you're ever actually going to talk about it. Talk about it after the season. Um, now the counter would be, "Well, these guys were able to play. So how bad was it really? And are you just making it worse now? Uh, are you just making it out to sound worse?" Now that you lost, I mean, I guess that's potentially the case. It, look, if these if these injuries are legitimate and it's true, and and they they battle through this, like yeah, there's a there's a reason uh, that they may not may have come up short. But I'd also I'd also tend to make the argument when you are like the the benefit of steamrolling everybody and not having to play as many games, you get a lot of rest, and you don't have to play as many like close games and battles and. The Avalanche probably had the health advantage because they played less games and didn't have as treacherous a path to get there because they knocked everybody out so quickly. So I think that would be what your counter is, is, is that your that's your advantage of playing so well. Well, let me give you the counter to the counter. The NFL puts out one of the most extensive injury reports of any league. They report three times a week, and you can believe it or you cannot believe it. You can believe the questionable designations like Bill Belichick putting everybody as questionable or not, but... We get specific body parts on every NFL injury. We get specific body parts on every NBA injury. They report damn near on the hour for the NBA. So 
I guess the whole idea of, well, if the other team knew they could target it, why more in hockey than in, in, in any other sport? Because honestly, I, I hate the whole upper body injury, lower body injury game, but if we're going to play it, then play it all the way through. I don't want to know. Don't even tell me now. Just keep telling me he was really hurt. I don't want to know. Oh, 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 now I know. Now I know he had an MCL injury. Well, now I can excuse that they lost. Were you going to tell me he had an MCL injury if they won? Are we going to get the full litany on the Colorado Avalanche now? <laughs> I, I, to me, I, I, the the lack of consistency is, is kind of maddening. Yeah, it drives me. I mean, it's, it's driven me nuts since I started covering the sport. And, like, it's one of those things I, I, I feel – when you you know when you do when you are somewhat you know new and, and getting into a sport and starting to cover it especially uh, from this side and you start raising a big stink about it and then all the purists are like you just don't get what hockey You're like okay I I guess I guess that's the case we don't we don't get the tradition of hockey of lying about injuries but again you better stop taking the money from from different gambling sites you better stop taking it because that's for information like that's what the whole thing is for right that's what we've always been told it's for data and information well. Then you better tell what tell what's going on out there. And we're going to get into that in about an hour with Sam Paniotovich, who uh, is our eye on sports gaming expert on Tuesdays. Of course, let's go to let's go to break on a slightly happier note, what? Adam. Uh, yeah, what? we're going to do it on a happier note. I feel like being positive today. I feel like this is not the kind of day to throw ketchup at the wall. This is the <laughs> kind of day to talk about happy, positive things. Okay. I'm going to give something away right now. Four-pack of any-day tickets to the NBA Summer League. All 30 teams, up to eight games per day. You can use this four-pack any day between July 7th and July 17th. It's at the Thomas & Mack Center. Tickets available at unlvtickets.com. Ari's taking Caller 7 right now on the line. Caller call 7 right now, 702-364-1100. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. Four seconds, three seconds, two seconds, one second. It's over. They did it. They did it. The job is done. The Colorado Avalanche are Stanley Cup champions. And they will lift Lord Stanley a mile high. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. Studio. Colorado Avalanche are Stanley Cup champions for the first time in 21 years. It's an Adams Family edition of Cofield and Company. Adam Candy, Adam Hill, Ari on the ones and twos. You hear the voice there of Connor McGee calls the Avalanche games for altitude. And I have to say, uh, one of the cooler championship calls I've heard in a while. They'll lift Lord Stanley a mile high. Uh, Connor's on the line with us here, and Connor, I have to ask you a, a question as someone who did play-by-play for a number of years. Did you have that one in pocket, or was that completely spontaneous? Well, I, I it, first of all, good to talk to you guys again. It's been a while. You too. Um, I, I, I thought about it a couple days before, and like I said, I never want to put the cart before the horse, you know what I mean? <laughs> um and I said, look, if, if, it, if it happens, it happens. And apparently the brain said it was going to happen. So um, the other stuff, no idea that I said that. And uh, <laughs> then we finally got to that part. But I, I, it was a nice cap on the end. But uh, I've always been pro-rhyme, alliteration, and that had a bunch of connotations to it. So 
yeah, I had thought about it for a little bit, and uh, so it was it was nice to get the opportunity to just sneak it in there. So, what does this title mean to the franchise and the city? Uh, I mean, it's a good question, Adam, because you know, in this in this town, it was you know. They've had the Broncos since 1960, and that was pretty much it. It's, it was a Broncos town, and then in the mid-'90s, here come the Colorado Avalanche, kind of a gift from the Quebec Nordiques because Quebec was a team that had gone to the Eastern Conference Final the year before. Some financial and arena issues forced the sale to, to Denver, and Pierre Lacroix was able to turn it into a championship team the first year. Um, and that was the first professional major sports championship in, in Denver, and that was the Stanley Cup. The Broncos went back-to-back Super Bowls the next two years, and then Colorado wins in 2001, and then went through a little bit of a, a dry spell here for a while. Obviously, the Broncos win the, the Super Bowl in 2015, but the Avalanche were a franchise that had set records for consecutive division championships with 14 and they had the NHL sellout record for a long time going. I mean, it was since the get go, it was a proud franchise. And when they hit really kind of 2008, uh, they ran into some bad luck and things started going awry. And, and that was something that people weren't used to. And they were able to, to finally get back on their feet after almost a, a, a decade of, of being towards the bottom. And, one of the fastest teams in NHL history to go worst to first from 16-17 when they had 48 points um, to last year when they won the President's Trophy and now the the Stanley Cup this year. So the Stanley Cup really was a, a special thing for Denver, Colorado because it was the first championship and, and now it's the most recent. Connor, I feel like I heard in the post-game interviews more players giving credit to the front office and specifically mm-hmm. Joe Sackick than I had heard in a long time. And and I guess it kind of dovetails with the question I have for you of why this Avalanche team, when the core of the team has been similar, now Kale McCarr has a little bit of experience, et cetera, et cetera. But what did Joe Sackick do in helping to put together this team that helped put them over the hump this year? Uh, the answer would be depth pieces, really. Um, both before the year, uh, Darren Helm was told by Detroit that there wasn't really room for him in the in the future going forward, so he signs as a free agent. Jack Johnson, uh, he's not sure if he's going to play professional hockey ever again. He's on a PTO. He makes the team at a training camp, and he's a depth piece for the abs on the blue line because they got into the last two Stanley Cup playoff runs and um, not so much last year. Last year, uh, and they would all tell you this, Vegas was was just better. They were just more dominant in the last four games to win that series in the six. But the years before versus Dallas and San Jose, the depth was sort of a question. And I think Joe Sackick and Chris McFarland, the assistant general manager, learned from both of those series in particular, and maybe even to a certain extent last year versus the Golden Knights, where they said, look, maybe outside of our big guys, we don't really have anybody. And maybe not necessarily big names, but guys who can play a certain way and fit a certain role, and that's what they did this year. Um, Valerian Achushkin turned into that player that they needed. They went out and got Arturi Lekkinen 
from the Montreal Canadiens, who they call Mini Valeri Nichushkin. And what we mean by that is he's just a 200-foot player who, who could and probably should be a Selkie finalist at some point, but also has a, a scoring touch. Uh, the warrior-like efforts of Andrew Cogliano uh, and Darren Helm on the fourth line, paired there with Logan O'Connor, uh, were really things that, that the Avalanche didn't have in the past. Colorado was not hard to play against, and a similar trait with all those players, and they almost said it to a T, was that they wanted to be harder to play against. And I think those lessons that Joe Sackick in the front office learned, they applied both in the off season and then at the trade deadline. And almost every single addition was a key part of the Avalanche winning the Stanley Cup this year. So how how difficult is it going to be for them to come back and, and make this happen again? I mean, obviously the talent is there, but as you said, a lot of it was kind of that edge and those you know those kind of those kind of guys playing gritty around them. So how how difficult will this be to come back and do it again? They are the favorites next year. They they are, but the the, the tough part is is that you have some key players who are going to become unrestricted free agents. Nazem Kadri, who had a season for the ages, his best year by far in the regular season and in the playoffs, is a restricted free agent. I mean, and he's earned himself a, a massive, massive raise. Now, Colorado needs to re-sign Nathan McKinnon uh, after this season. And McKinnon has been playing on one of the most uh, team-friendly contracts, I think, in all of sports. McKinnon only making $6.5 million a year, which for one of the game's superstars is not a lot. He'll be due, you know, double that coming up. So you have to keep that in mind when you're trying to re-sign some of these guys. Uf- UFAs include Burakovsky, uh, the aforementioned Valery Nachushkin, uh, Arturi Lekanen is a restricted free agent. He needs a new contract. Uh, and then Devon Taves will be in Nathan McKinnon territory. He'll need a new deal at the same time. So it's always tough to go back-to-back, but when you have... So many players that need new deals and only a certain amount of money. Again, the cap has not gone up as much as I think some GMs would have liked. That that will be tough for Colorado. But what I will say is that Joe Sackick, again, and Chris McFarland and their amateur and pro scouting staffs have done a great job at finding those players who can come in at a discount and fill the roles that we just talked about, like Helm, Agliano, Josh Manson, who is an R, uh, UFA, excuse me. So it, if he wants to stay, what kind of money will he demand? But if he has to go, uh, this front office has gotten good at finding players that are maybe off the radar a little bit that can still do the job but won't cost you as much. Connor Begay joins us from Altitude Sports, where he calls Avalanche play-by-play, talking about the Stanley Cup championship for Colorado, you mentioned the new contract on its way for Nathan McKinnon, and and I'll ask this in a very broad way to give you the broadest possible path to answer. <laughs> Who is Nathan McKinnon? Ooh, that that that's about as wide brush as you can get. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Almost abstract. Um, <laughs> Nathan McKinnon is one of the fiercest competitors that I've ever run into. Um, I, I use golf as an example. Nathan McKinnon at first um, was not a great golfer, and he did not like the fact that he was not a great golfer. So what does he do? He goes out and works and use his, uses his natural gifts uh, along with his work ethic to become uh, pretty, pretty much as close to you know 
a five handicap or something like that that you that you could ask for. So he didn't like to not be good at something, and he doesn't like to lose at all, and he wants everybody around him to want it as much as he does. And his messaging in that has changed over the years. He has matured, and that maturity and that change with the same messaging to something that's really more effective has has led his teammates to want it as much as he does. And I think that was a big part of Colorado winning the Cup this year um, because everybody grows up, or at least you hope so. But for, for Nathan McKinnon, his maturation process, I think, is one of the biggest signs that, that really points to where Colorado came from and where they are now. So when it comes to Nathan McKinnon, he is as focused and as disciplined uh, and as skilled and as hardworking as you could ask for 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 any professional athlete. And finally, for him, he's not going to fall into the category of one of the game's greats that never won because I think that was a great fear of his. It's a great fear of anybody who is a first-round draft pick, selected first overall. You never want to be one of the great players who never won. And now Nathan McKinnon doesn't have to be that. Yeah, Kel McCarr had to wait a long time for his, too. <laughs> he, finally, he finally was able to get over the hump. Uh, obviously, we're all going to remember that last moment. You know, the, the everybody going into mad celebration, surviving that kind of onslaught there at the end, uh, the wild, you know, party that set off on the ice. But what what to you is like the defining moment, maybe the memorable moment from this playoffs where it's like, okay, that was it. That was the turning point, And now they kind of went on from there to win. You know, I would have to say Darren Helm's goal with less than six seconds left in game six versus the St. Louis Blues. Because um, that did away with the narrative that Colorado could not get past the second round. And that was their bugaboo. And for whatever reason, the train could be million, be moving at a million miles an hour and then all of a sudden stall uh, when it got to round two of the Stanley Cup playoffs, just like it did in 2019, 2020, uh, and 2021. Um, so the fact that they were able to beat a really hard team, I mean, St. Louis played Colorado as tough as anybody in these playoffs. And what the Avalanche did is they won all three games in St. Louis, including the one to clinch. And the goal came from somebody that you don't expect it to come from. And it was a fairy tale moment. And, and the Avalanche have had a bunch of those inside of this run, and they usually lead to fairy tale endings. But I, I think that game, especially on the heels of losing game five, because Nathan McKinnon scores a hat trick at home in game five including one of the best goals you're probably ever going to see, coast to coast. Nice move to, to really juke out uh, really Huso and go short side. That should have been the game winner with two minutes left. Instead, the Blues score. They tie it. They force overtime. They win it in OT to go back to St. Louis for game six. And Colorado doesn't back down. They don't let that collapse in the third period bug them. They win. And because of that, because of the fact it was in the second round, I think that was the game that was the turning point for Colorado in these playoffs. Connor, we appreciate the time so much. Uh, congratulations to the Avalanche franchise, and uh, glad you got to be a part of that. Thank you guys very much, and uh, you know, look forward to seeing you soon. There's always a good time for uh, for me there, and I it's uh, it'll be good to come back. 
All right. Sounds good. More Cofield and Company coming up.